0: This is The Politics Lab, a podcast that puts politics under a microscope. On this week's episode, Bill and Phil throw out the outline and instead discuss the week's breaking news, including the Republican efforts to elect a House Speaker, new legal trouble for Trump in Georgia, and the spiraling conflict in Gaza. Now let's go to the lab.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Politics Lab. My name is Phil Barker, and I am professor of political science at Keene State College. And I'm joined by my colleague and best friend, Dr. Bill Monk, who's professor of political science at North
0: Central College. Hey, Bill. How are you? I'm doing all right. Happy Wednesday. Happy Podcast Day. The world is is, is the political world is in chaos. So we had, we had to crinkle up any potential outlines and just say, let's just talk about the new stuff. <laughs> Yeah, at some point you just gotta you just gotta wing it, right? <laughs> this is right. If Trump is is getting yelled at uh, by a judge in New York or wherever, and and the new the seventeenth House Speaker is up for a vote, you just got you just gotta go with the news.
1: Yeah, yeah. This, I mean. Yeah, at least everything is sort of calming down in 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 Israel and Gaza, right? <laughs> That'll be a nice right. easy conversation at the end of this uh, podcast. Yeah it, yeah.
0: it is it is it's interesting. There are moments where like there most weeks we try to think about what's going on in the world, but also stepping back and saying let's bring the lens of political science. Let's look at some really sort of interesting Intellectual, you know, uh, empirical arguments and kind of connect it to the world. And then there are weeks where it's like we just got to talk about the dumb stuff that Trump is doing, the <laughs> the weird stuff going on in Congress, and and a spiraling soon-to-be world conflict. Right. <laughs>
1: right. It does feel like there is a lot go. I mean, it does. That's the other thing is there are some weeks where it feels like we're looking at really small stories, and this is there's a lot. It feels like big developments that that uh, are going to have implications for a long time in all three of these topics. We're going to dig into.
0: Too. That's right, and then just before we went on the air, you're like, "Hey, did you hear the thing about Clarence Thomas?" I'm like, "What? No, <laughs> I haven't right. heard anything about the Clarence Thomas. Yeah. Why did you it, tell, tell the people what's apparently going on with Clarence Thomas?"
1: Yeah, so the New York Times is, is has reported was reporting, and I guess the story was out there a little bit, but uh, yeah, so he had a he bought a, a two hundred and seventy thousand uh, dollar like motor RV uh, a while back. Um, With financing by not by, you know, uh, this is how you finance things, too. When you finance things, you just find like wealthy friends who finance it on your behalf, right? It's so so much better
0: than Bank of America. Yes.
1: (laughs) So he had somebody who's like testified before Congress and stuff who financed this motorhome purchase for him. And then uh, (laughs) whoops. I don't even know what's happening, Bill. I hit my soundboard and there's somebody talking now. And I
0: <laughs>
1: i don't even know how to make this stop. Let's see. Here we go. Oh, I found it. What was Somehow that? it was like in the fourth, like I have like all these it's some sound quote from some other podcast episode we did forever ago that's still in my soundboard i guess all
0: right all right, all right. so so clarence thomas clarence thomas is he uh, got financing for this couple hundred thousand dollar rv which he apparently like parks in walmart cuz he wants to be around the people you know he wants to be exposed to the, the real america um, all right so he gets this loan from a, a big wig fan, uh, fancy rich guy
1: yeah, but then apparently the big wig fancy rich guy who who helped finance this for him just uh I don't know what like made the loan go away, right? Like just uh what I don't forgave the debt in some that's, way. So it's the best. Uh, so yeah, I mean I love I, when so banks I guess he that. <laughs> That just happens for you all the time, right? <laughs> yes. So I I guess that he did he, he reported that he had the loan, but he never reported that it had been forgiven, I guess. That, I, that's uh... I, I,
0: yes. If I remember, previous reporting uh had suggested that he gotten this loan, I don't remember who the guy is, from somebody, uh, and that the loan I don't know the exact language, but they basically said it was you know, complete, it was finished, and then somebody asked, does that mean it was paid off? And they never really clarified that. So it sounds like it was never paid off. Off, it was basically a gift. And, Phil, is there any problems giving a couple hundred thousand dollar vehicle to a Supreme Court justice? That, that's OK, right? It's, that's in the Constitution. I think so. yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. There's no no ethical concerns, no tax concerns, no, no <laughs> it, problems whatsoever. But it's OK, Bill. Because the Supreme Court, like, you know, they they're uh, an upright institution and they they don't need ethics rules. They they, um, you know, uh, they they self-regulate themselves in check. Right. They self-regulate. So so it's fine.
0: Yeah, this is uh, (laughs) well okay. So we may have to come back to that one in the future. But uh, before we start, we're going to dive in with the the Speaker of the House. But you remind everybody how they can stay connected with us. Yeah. So
1: the thepoliticslab.com is the webpage. You can go there for all sorts of you know uh, podcast-related stuff, information on Bill and I, social media links, all of that. All of our old episodes are there. And each of our episodes has uh, articles that are relevant that are linked. I think I only put one up this week. So there's not as much. It's like a light homework week for our listeners this week. But, uh, yeah. but uh, yeah. So you can always find all that information at thepoliticslab.com.
0: All right. So uh, no formal introductions here. We're just going to start with the fact that the The house finally has a speaker. There is a speaker of the house. Uh, His name is... Uh, Mike Johnson. To be honest, I had never heard of this guy until a couple of days made ago. Up. He sounds yes, made up to me. Sounds... I think they
1: just came, they just created yes. a fake personality that they were going to say. We, we can all agree on this person because he has no history whatsoever. <laughs> right,
0: right. So, uh, so yeah, he's a little known social conservative uh, from Louisiana. Um, he's, he's 51. Um, that's about all I know of him other than, um, you know, they made a choice. If, if you're thinking about, was this more of a centrist, Republican or is he more of a, a sort of right-wing radical? Uh, he falls into the radical element. Uh, you know, he is more, you know, he he's an election denier. He was he was active in those efforts to uh, try to get Trump to overthrow the election. Um, let's see what else. Uh, he's very close to Donald Trump uh, and uh He voted against funding for Ukraine. So, right? I mean, so he's you know he's somebody that uh, denies the election, is very much against any uh, funding for Ukraine. Um, He supports all varieties of LGBTQ restrictions. uh, It's against gay marriage. So, this is this is a true social conservative election denier. Uh, So, they made the choice to say, do we go moderate or do we go more extreme? And Phil, they went extreme.
1: They went extreme. Yeah, I mean, I suppose we shouldn't be. I,
0: we shouldn't be that
1: surprised by this. My, although, you know, there were brief moments where I was hopeful that, you know, as, as we went through sort of candidate after candidate and vote after vote, and there was a clear, like, kind of chaos within the party. And and there was a part of me that hoped that that chaos might lead to, we had talked about this, a break from yeah. the more radical edge of the party. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing to me that the sort of hardline wing of the party won out and managed yeah. to basically force the hand of the larger well maybe it's not maybe that's the thing i was going to say larger uh sort of more moderate wing of the party but maybe this is a testament to the fact that that the the moderate wing is the small wing of the party at this point because you i mean you're right like this is this guy is um from you know what i see and read about him is uh he's he's essentially jim jordan yeah. Without the like the sort of name recognition, right? He's not on Fox News every yeah. night like Jim Jordan is, but but uh, yeah, I mean, this is the the party has chosen to elevate. I mean, it should say enough that yesterday. Um, or w- when this was playing out, when Immer was nominated or whatever, that that Trump immediately attacked him. That Trump did not speak out at all. You know, didn't criticize the selection of Johnson. Um, you know, Matt Gates. You sent me a thing earlier. Matt Gates was was talking, was doing an interview, talking about how this guy is essentially Jim Jordan, right? Like yes. if the, the,
0: he's he's this a guy. Mega is victory.
1: A, yeah, and he's the one who wrote a lot of the sort of legal briefs supporting the election denialism stuff. I mean, this is this is not a good development. And I feel like there's, there's this tendency to discuss it in terms of like, but he's, you know, he's not as, I don't know, ostentatious or whatever as, you know, he believes, I heard somebody today say he believes in institutions, but you can't say that you believe in institutions and then also support uh, like election denialism. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think this, this just shows the extent to which the Trump that Trump and sort of Trumpism have you know be- become the dominant I mean that that is what the Republican yeah. Party is now.
0: Yeah and the party caved right so if there was any debate about where the party's soul is anymore. It's clearly it is it is it is a Trump Republican Party because the the I don't know moderate's not the right word because you know seventy uh, percent of the Republican Party believes that the election was stolen. But there there are there are more moderate voices within the House Republicans uh, who have the clear majority. Uh, but they were willing to cave to have a speaker, right? So you have roughly twenty of the House Freedom Caucus who are the most extreme versions of the MAGA, and they're able to dictate outcomes at this point. And we've gone over this over and over again about how important it is a party to for a party to regulate itself. And this is once again another example where the party caves to anti-democratic elements of uh, of that the, the party, right? So um, you know, I mean, he he is uh, certainly well-spoken. He gave a speech today. He's a smart guy. Um, seems you know seems somewhat intellectual. Uh, but his his position is clearly a Trump-supporting mega uh, candidate. And the fact that he's an election denier should be the end for somebody to be third in line to the president. Um, But that this Republican Party is unwilling to sort of make those hard choices. I I think it's going to ultimately continue to hurt them. Right. This is he is not as he won't appear as dangerous as as Jim Jordan. But I think um, his positions are the same, if not a tad more extreme.
1: Well, I mean, this is kind of a test of we've talked about. Like, is, is a Donald Trump more dangerous than a... Uh, you know, a Trump lookalike or, who's maybe yeah. more, yeah, who's yeah. who's sort of more palatable uh, by traditional political standards, but has the same you know governing mental uh, you know, approach. And I, this is a perfect example in which, like, somehow it feels more comfortable because he's you know not as uh, sort of visibly uh, insane as Jim Jordan, yeah. right? But um, yeah, I mean, I think that potentially it makes him you know more dangerous. And and again, to go like you were saying, to go back to the you know we've talked over the last couple of months. About this idea of semi-loyal Democrats, right? How how that that you know what should happen, and and there are lots of examples around the world where this does happen. Where rep- Republicans, what ideally would have what we would have seen is that democracy is sort of number one, and party is number two. And so, what should happen in in a true like functioning democracy is that you should have Republicans who will put democracy above their party, and there there should have been some sort of you know coalition or some sort of movement by moderate Republicans to oppose this even if it meant siding with with Demo- with Democrats because protecting democracy is more important than winning the game, the political game um, yes. but we didn't you know the, the, it's not just that he was elected right this this ended up as a unanimous vote right every single Republican in the house voted uh, for Johnson today and that's that's I don't know that's that's disappointing in lots of different ways.
0: Right. You know, the party, to, to your point, the, the Republican Party could have made the choice to say we're willing to give up a little bit of power and we will compromise with the Democrats to get enough. Right. And and maybe that means but it would have to have been a more centrist candidate. It, it probably mm-hmm. could have even been McCarthy again. Uh, they would have had to give up a little bit of, of power, maybe some some control, but not all control. The Republicans still would have dominated like this happens all of the time in Europe. Um, but the appearance of cooperating with the Democrats is no longer tolerated. So you you yeah accept the more extreme candidate rather than cooperate uh, with those who are sort of trying to really protect the institution. So it's yeah, it's very revealing. Um, I I am surprised, right? I, I thought that there would be more backbone within the Republican Party to say if somebody like Jim Jordan is unacceptable, then somebody like Mike Johnson would also be unacceptable. But what it appears is people just don't like Jim Jordan, right? So there was more right. personal animosity. <laughs> right. It was less about his election denial, denialism and all of that. And it was, more about him just being a jerk to some republicans and that's why they couldn't tolerate them because they were fully happy to tolerate an election denier as long as he's you know a former radio host and kind of a well-spoken guy and he wears a suit right so that's okay
1: yeah that's that's uh that's disappointing I, i it's kind of a i wonder how much of it was just sort of exhaustion or a recognition that like there there is not really any other path forward but again That's not an excuse, right? It comes back around to like the the path forward isn't to say I'm exhausted by these uh, you know uh, anti-democratic politicians, and so I'll just give in. Um, That's not that's not a great great way to to move forward. I mean, we still it'll be interesting to see what happens now because I mean he's talked about you know there's the house's fate. I mean his his like top priorities I guess are uh, whatever solidarity with Israel and and uh, you know finding some you know government funding stuff. But this is where, I mean, the party is not structured to govern at all. It's been based on an ideology of opposition to government. Um, And, you know, again, we talked about like Jim Jordan, who's never like led, like never drafted a piece of legislation in his entire time in office. So governing is not their strength. And now how you raise, how you rise to the top of the party is by being you know again trump is the is the model which is not about actually governing it's just about like critiquing being and and so but but they're still going to have to govern here and this is where like i don't know how this like what advantage is gained here over McCarthy, who was also, you know, wasn't exactly, uh, you know, a super uh, small D Democrat, like, and so like, what's he going to like, if, if, if McCarthy was ousted for passing a spending bill, what's going to happen when, when Johnson does the same in two weeks? Like, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure, like, this seems like a doomed experiment itself in some way.
0: that's exactly right, because you've got real bills that are coming. So aid for Israel, aid for Israel that Biden wants to take uh, to tie to aid for Ukraine. Now, um, personally, Johnson has been against uh, supporting aid for Ukraine. So does he kill that? Right. Is that or does he throw uh, you know problems in terms of that particular piece of legislation? And and, and a majority, I think it's still about 50 percent of Republicans still support aid for Ukraine. Right. So there's that divide within the party. Same thing with budgets. Right. Are they going to vote to keep the government open? Uh I, I think you're right. I think uh, a month from now, we're still going to be grappling with many of these same issues because they've elected a speaker. But that doesn't mean that they can govern. Right. Uh, they've they've moved past the most uh, embarrassing stage of not even being able to elect a speaker. But, yeah, what does he do? Uh, is it, Does he govern in a more centrist way or does he govern in the more right wing extremist way, which means you don't govern? So I, 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 we will see.
1: Well, and even governing in this interest, way means you don't govern because you can't like the majority is so small that you lose those sort of hardliners and you can't pass anything then either, unless you're willing to reach across the aisle and work with. I mean, we're in the exact nothing has changed about the makeup of the house. You have uh, uh, sort of this wing of the Republican Party who sees working with Democrats as the ultimate sin but therefore are holding the the whole house hostage yeah. so I you know I, I I just picked up this book by Levitsky and zablat they're the ones who wrote um, uh, uh, how democracies die but they have this new book out called the the tyranny of the minority um, and I've just started reading it but it's 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 fantastic but the, I mean their whole argument essentially is that you know we're not truly like uh, that the US has all sorts of inst- problems but our institutions are a big part of it but that his argument is um you know it, we already know, we've talked about on this, when when you go through broad societal changes like we've been going through, there is this kind of backlash, this populist kind of authoritarian backlash that plays out. The problem is that we in the United States have a system that is set up, that is designed to allow partisan minorities to essentially, you know, hijack the entire system. And this is a perfect example of it in which like you have the the like the sort of hard, hard right wing of the Republican Party. Um, that's, that's, you know, a small chunk of the, po- that represents the small chunk of the population that is able to hold everyone else hostage. So now we have an election denying hard right, you know, speaker of the house, um, even though like arguably there's only, you know, 20 or 30 people in the, ho- in the house who act actually want this this candidate and and they have the tools to do that so like it, it's hard for moderates to hold out against them because they can just you know with a handful of votes shut the
0: whole thing down which is the point right uh, as you were mentioning earlier it really isn't about governance anymore it's about theater it's about attacking the deep state uh, and so, there, you know, for the for the party, it's it looked embarrassing that they didn't have a speaker, but otherwise it doesn't matter. Right. So if everything mm-hmm. continues, I think when we face this next challenge of whether we're going to pass, you know, aid for Israel and Ukraine or whether we're going to keep the government open, they win by not legislating. And it, it just creates this uh, really dangerous anti-democratic democracy where, um, like you said, a minority is able to dictate anti-democratic outcomes.
1: Well, and there's this irony or this paradox or whatever in it in which like the inability of government to function well is part of what drives populism. So, yeah. so the people who are frustrated with the government are, are reaching out and like picking people like Jim Jordan or Mike Johnson, but they're the ones who are then in the name of populist anger, like trying to shut down, like prevent the government from doing anything, which just feeds that resentment against government as well. So it's just the spiral, which is again, where without some sort of, I don't know, uh, significant changes or institutions, changes that prevent this from happening it feels like we're kind of in this this loop that I don't I don't know how to get out of unless eventually people start to associate ineffective government with Republicans that they don't look at the government, say government's ineffective. And so I'm going to support the Republicans. At some point, people have to start to say government is ineffective because of Republicans. Um, They're not the they're not the solution. They're the cause. Um, But you know, it feels like I don't know, maybe maybe we're getting closer to that. But today it feels like we're still a long ways away.
0: No, that's a great way of framing it. Uh, But it is hard to get to that point when each party demonizes the other. Right. So it's it doesn't matter how bad the the Republicans are. They're not as bad as the Democrats. Right. And so, you know, that's that's how we that's how we get to embrace somebody like Trump. Right. At least he fights for our side and he's got his flaws, but he's fighting for us. And and so as long as the other side represents an existential threat, um, you know, there's no reason to do that. It's, it's just you're right. It's a really dangerous loop that uh, that we're on right now. And again, it's it's so telling that this is the direction that the Republican Party went. They had lots of options, centrist, you know, relatively yep. centrist Republicans. And and they went with somebody who's on the far right, because that's the only way you could get somebody elected. Uh, yeah, just just stunning.
1: Yep. Well, speaking of of uh, you know populism and yeah. the the new state of the Republican Party and how you get elected, should we, should we talk a little bit about Trump and, and his situation?
0: Yes, not real good news on the Trump uh, staying out of jail legal front. So there's (laughs) there's a lot to break down here. But uh, most specifically, the sort of big news yesterday was that former Trump lawyer Jenna Ellis, uh, who you all will probably remember her and Rudy and Sidney Powell, they were like the leading the charge about the election denial. She pled guilty on Tuesday morning in the Georgia election interference case, and she became the fourth uh, to accept a plea deal rather than go to trial. So, again, Jenna Ellis, Kenneth Cheeseborough, Sidney Powell, and some other guy named Scott Hall. I don't know anything about Scott Hall, but the other three, all lawyers for Trump, have all accepted plea deals and to some degree or other are now uh, pledged to testify against others that are still having their cases out there. Now, is this a good or a bad development for Donald Trump, Phil? I mean, I know we're not lawyers here, but this this, this the, the doesn't feel real good, does it?
1: Well, he continues to insist that he's done nothing wrong and it's that he right. hasn't told any lies about anything. So, right. so it should be fine, right? I'm assuming that they're agreeing agreeing to testify is is agreeing to testify in support of Trump. Right? Yes. <laughs> right. No, to I mean this truth. seems this seems really. I mean i uh, I mean these things made news, but I don't. This is I, this feels like. You know we've we've made comparisons to Watergate or whatever, and these feel like sort of tide turning moments in in some ways. I mean, it feels like the tide had already started to turn, but yeah, when you've got the three of your lawyers who are pleading guilty to trying to to basically I forget what the exact charges are, but basically making false claims and and supporting yeah. false documents and all, all that, so um, admitting that they essentially were lying about stuff um, uh, that doesn't bode well, and, and especially when every single one of them has agreed to testify against uh, Trump and he's yeah. going to obviously attack them. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, again, it, <laughs> I think this is people like you know, we've talked about conspiracy theories before and conspiracies do happen. But conspiracies happen. They, they tend they don't happen on these massive yeah. scales where, where it would be really impossible to carry them out. They do happen on these sort of smaller scales. Yeah. And when you start to have, you know, multiple people who were in on the the plan or on the conspiracy who are willing to talk openly about it. Um, it's, yeah, this doesn't bode well. And, and Trump obviously, you know, again, when this comes up in court, he, we're seeing already, we can talk about that here in a second. Trump's already not handling himself well in court. <laughs> this just like every day that this goes by, it just feels sort of increasingly inevitable that that Trump's going to end up in prison somewhere.
0: It does feel like, I mean, there've been a lot of bad days on the legal front for Trump, but yesterday felt really bad when you've now got three of your former lawyers who Trump now says knows nothing about, right? Just barely knew them, uh, who are willing to testify against them. And, And so it it strikes me, you and I initially had talked about the the Georgia case seemed like the least structured, it was so mm-hmm. massive, you know, I don't know, 20 some people were indicted, it felt sort of like just too much and too confusing uh, but now they are picking off individual after individual and maybe that was the intent, right, that there's yeah. no chance that we're going to go to trial against 19 or 20 people, we're going to start flipping people and building cases and so if you're one of the other defendants, if you're Rudy or if you're Donald Trump or some other ones, you've got to be worried now Because, uh, you know, they've pled guilty uh, and they wouldn't get plea deals unless they had some information that was of worth to the prosecutors. Right. So this this feels like there's more evidence out there that is to come. Um, And the other thing I would notice, it seems like Jenna Ellis really learned her lesson. She was you know, she read that letter and she was crying. Uh, and and said she made some mistakes and she listened to bad legal advice. Um, and if she had to do it all over again, she wouldn't do. Do you, I mean I I find that compelling. She's, do you believe her that she really is? Yeah, she's uh, just
1: just a poor a poor kid swept up in the moment. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yes, uh, that is. No, a you do I mean, deep- you don't.
1: <laughs> You, you don't get to be the the lawyer for the former president without like, you know, you're again, this is you've made choices that have yeah. gotten you here. Like right. by the time this played out, you knew what you were getting into when you did it. I do like that. The all these people who are pleading guilty. One of the things that uh, they're having to do is issue public like apologies <laughs> right. to the state <laughs> right. of Georgia, which feels like very, you know, elementary school punishment wise. But I love it. I think it's it's I think it's totally appropriate. There should be something like we're going to treat you a little bit like a child for acting. Yes. you're gonna you're gonna pay. You know you're gonna have. Uh, you know you're gonna go on probation and all of these other things. But you're also gonna write a nice letter apologizing That's to right. everyone. Right.
0: <laughs> no. So 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 there's that front, which you know. So you have the lawyers in the in the Georgia case flipping. And then the other news was that uh, Trump's uh, final chief of staff, Mark Meadows. Uh, this is a new uh, story reported by ABC News. Uh, has spoken with Special Counsel Jack Smith's team at least three times, including one before a, grand, a federal grand jury, um, so which came only after Smith granted uh, Meadows immunity to testify under oath, according to source familiar with the matter. Uh, the sources said Meadows informed Smith's team that he repeatedly told Trump in the weeks after the 2020 presidential election that the allegations of significant voting fraud uh, coming to them were baseless and that Trump was being dishonest with the public when he claimed to have won the election. And then he said, obviously, we didn't win. Um, Now, this is another interesting development because Mark Meadows actually wrote a book where he argued that the election was stolen. And so now under oath, he is telling Jack Smith team, Smith team, who's carrying out a federal investigation of the attack in the 2020 election uh, that, oh, yeah, yeah, I I told Trump, you know, we told him it was obviously not stolen. He was aware of this. I told him that he was being dishonest. That's got to be bad news for Trump, too, right?
1: A hundred percent. I mean, there's so many, there's so many elements to the. I mean, to all of these, but this particular one. I mean, first, let's talk about Mark Meadows and and yeah. what a despicable like slime ball he is, right? I mean, this sure. is this is evidence of the fact that like that this. I mean, this goes back to like what you were just saying. What he is acknowledging is that he knew that this was that this election wasn't stolen. He told the president that what they were doing was wrong, um, and yet. He went out in public and repeatedly said these things. He wrote a book about it. Like yeah. it, we ask, you know, we talk about like, do they know, like, do these people know better or have they bought into the lie? And repeatedly we it's like revealed they knew better. Yeah. They're just running a grift. Right. And that that is where like that's what's frustrating, I think, about this whole process is how many people are on board with this Trump movement based on the notion that Washington is corrupt, when in fact, the most like corrupt, the people lying to them, the most corrupt, you know, aspect are the people that they're getting on board with. Right. Yeah. And and so it's, yes, I mean, I, there's no sympathy uh, whatsoever for me, for, for Mark Meadows. I mean, in some ways it's almost kind of frustrating that he gets immunity to do this, yeah, but right. it's again, going after uh, the, the, the bigger fish. Um, I, I don't know. Do you have, uh, before I, I have stuff to say about the Trump part of it too, but I didn't know if you, who, um, wanted well, to no, defend Mark it's, Meadows.
0: <laughs> it's, what's wonderful is that these these narratives in the court of public opinion, you can say anything, right? And so there's yep. you can lie and you can say you you can know you're lying and still lie, and it's you know it's no big deal because it's just free speech. But now we're seeing when it comes to a court of law that you can't get away with that, right? And that there's real power here. So we talk about the power of institutions. Uh, we're seeing here the the power of these institutions to compel truth. And to force these individuals, you know, for out of fear of going to jail, to be honest about what happened. Uh, And Mark Meadows is doing that. Jenna Ellis is doing that. Kenneth Cheeseborough. they are all realizing, like, I can go to jail if I don't come and be honest about what I did in my role in all of this. And then suddenly they find that they can be honest. And um, yeah, but you're right. There's there's a an unbelievable level of. Sort of uh, ickiness to Mark Meadows writing a book and trying to make money off of a stolen election when he knew, and if we're to believe his testimony, told Donald Trump that this wasn't stolen. So he knew better, but nevertheless, for his own career or political ambition, was willing to spread a lie he knew to be not truthful. Yeah, absolutely. It's just it's 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 icky, Phil. Yep.
1: Well, I mean, I I sort of jotted down as you were talking, you've talked about how like, you know, the fact that Ellis and Chesbro and Powell and all the Meadows have all flipped um, is is, you know, indicative of the fact like they wouldn't be given immunity or, uh, you know, uh, lighter sentences or whatever if they didn't have information that they could testify. And that's true. But the other part of it is they wouldn't be granted, um, they, they wouldn't be pleading guilty unless these cases were pretty solid. So they also recognize that they're likely to lose in court. So there's like a double thing going on here. Yes. They see the writing on the wall of these cases that, I mean, what this indicates is the cases being put put together um, by Jack Smith and by the the Willis team in, in Georgia are strong cases. Like the, yes. the attorneys are basically seeing this is not going to end well. So it, it both indicates the strength of the case. And, um, the, the, those cases are only getting stronger when you add these other testimonies, testimonies to it. And so, um, yeah, this, this doesn't look good. And then, and then, I mean, it, it looks great for accountability for Trump, but it doesn't look yeah. good if you're, if you're Trump. Um, but, um, The other part you were talking about, which is about the the beauty of, of course, is that they can compel testimony and they can hold people accountable. And and it's not the court of public opinion. This is a literal, you know, a a court of law and how that plays out. And you see that today uh, when, you know, Trump was testifying in his or what he was forced to testify. So this is the ongoing New York trial, the civil trial. Um, where he's had a gag order placed on him because he cannot stop himself from attacking, you know, doing the Trump thing where he attacks people on social media and whatnot. And I guess he had already been slapped with a $5,000 fine, which again is not, is really nothing. But I guess today, again, he was, he was uh, uh, made a statement during the day about the, the judge being partisan and also uh, how the judge was sitting next to another partisan individual, and and the judge called him in and made him get on the st- <laughs> take the stand. Uh, and his Trump was claiming that he was talking about Michael Cohen, who's testifying, and not the the court, uh, whatever the the whoever's the the pur- anyway. Yeah, the judge yeah. the, the judge did not believe him and slapped another ten thousand dollar fine on him. And I guess Trump likes like sort of went out in a huff. Um, <laughs> but it's it is again where he is. I think he's been able to use his influence, his whatever else to either ignore power through legal uh, issues in the past, he's been able to get away with anything. Uh, and now he's he's not. And and it'll be like that's, again, where when these others start testifying, if if this civil case if he can't manage to keep his mouth shut or to to like navigate this relatively small civil case um uh, appropriately it's just he's just going to be a mess and a meltdown and it's it's like again again i'm like you know there have been lots of things i've been convinced of that did not actually come come to to pass but this feels again increasingly you know like there's trump's trump's on his way to to jail uh,
0: yes, because you think about all the previous things where one felt like this could happen, right? You know, whether it was the, the two impeachments or the Mueller investigation, the, the evidence is overwhelming, but Trump was able to sort of weasel out of it. But this doesn't feel like he's going to be able to weasel, right? I mean, especially in the New York case, you know, the, the New York case was dealing with the valuation of his assets. And, you know, he said that his... his his apartment was worth way more than it really, really was. There's no, not even a jury here. It's just the judge that he daily pisses off is going to be <laughs> making the <laughs> determination. So is that, a bad, is,
1: is that a bad strategy? <laughs> it's
0: a really bad strategy. Um, and, and actually, the judge has already found him you know, guilty for that. I guess it's just yep. sort of these just additional charges. So he's in a whole lot of hurt there. Now, luckily, he can't go to jail for that, but he can lose a lot of money and lose his ability to practice in New York for that. But yeah, these other ones, whether we're talking about Georgia or the two federal cases, you know, for a long time, it felt like the documents case was the the overwhelming one where he was in major trouble. And I think that still is the case. But now this Georgia one feels like it has gotten much more serious. This feels like a, I mean, a mob trial, right? I mean, they're using the racketeering uh, laws to go after him, but it feels like you're seeing you know the rats start to flip and mm-hmm. uh, you know more and more pressure and the the longer you wait the the worse deal you're going to get right so now there's probably some pressure on these other individuals to say do you want to wait out cuz if you wait out and somebody else gives us that information that we want you're going to also be on the docket so I, I, it feels like they're starting to turn on each other and For all the talk that Donald Trump does about loyalty, like he's not loyal to anybody around him, (laughs) and they're no longer going to be loyal to him, right? So, I mean, if Meadows is flipping, if his lawyers are flipping, I mean, Rudy's already mad at him because he owes him millions of dollars, right? I mean, (laughs) I got to think if you're Rudy at this point, you've got to be thinking about flipping, right? I don't even know if they would offer him a deal because Rudy's about is just there's no credibility credible is he (laughs) but I mean you know it's it's this could start spiraling quickly where they're turning on each other so it's uh it's turned into some really excellent reality reality tv
1: yeah, it is. I mean, it is very telling. It's remarkable that the documents case, which like you were saying, is is seemingly the the most slam dunky of these cases is the one we're not even talking about. Like we're talking about things getting bad in the other. So uh, and again, Trump's going. like you said, Trump's going to be increasingly isolated and alone in these things. He's not going to handle that well. It's uh, it's it, it really is. Um, it is remarkable. And I, it'll be interesting to see how the the this all plays out in terms of strategy and whatnot moving forward as well, because, you know, as you start getting sworn testimony on, on, you know, uh, in trials, those become, you know, useful and other, so they they start to kind of help each other build as well. And so it'll be interesting to see, you know, I'm sure there's conversations about the, how this is going to play out or whatever, but, you know, is there a strategy to letting one of these trials sort of move forward more quickly than the others? Um, because it might help. Yeah. In in subsequent trials and uh, yeah and you know again as Trump begins to. if if things start to unravel in one, does that lead him to seek to do his own like guilty plea to try to to save himself in some way? I I can't imagine that ever happening.
0: But it it (laughs) would be the smart thing for him to do. Right. He should take any deal that he can get uh, because they've they've got him dead to rights in in all of these cases. And as more time goes by, the, the danger is just going to build. But he's he's a terrible client. Right. I mean, he is He's not somebody that you want to be defending in court. And there's no way that he can testify on his own behalf because any lawyer would just eat him to shreds. Uh, I'm sure they would just, you know, they would love the idea of putting Trump on the stand. I mean, the only reason he testified today is because the judge made him testify. I mean, it's it's just comical how... How silly all of this is and and that he can't control himself. And you know, he was out attacking the judge even after, you know, he, he got yelled at and got fined another t- 10 grand. So this is going to be an ongoing, ongoing situation.
1: The idea of him taking the stand and, like, being called to testify in some way is, like, yeah. I, I, I can just imagine some, like, really stupid version of, like, a few good men, right, where he gets on the stand <laughs> and, like, the attorney has, like, practiced to try to figure out a way to get him to say it. And, like, Trump <laughs> is just going to immediately say it. Like, he's going to say – <laughs> it feels like you could provoke him into saying whatever you wanted him to say. Um, yeah. um, even if he's, like, pleading the fifth, you know, uh, I don't know. It feels like you could, like, just – you know, I don't know throw a little barb at him and he would immediately start talking oh. even though his lawyers have told him not to so i it yes. yeah it's it's going to be fascinating
0: well i mean one of his uh, i guess one of his best potential defenses was to argue that he was listening to his lawyers and mm-hmm. then a couple of weeks back he was asked that question like did you just follow the orders of your lawyers he said no i made all decisions myself right <laughs> whoop there goes that legal defense yeah. you know? yeah. so, so if they try to bring that up suddenly jack smith or Funny willis whoever it is can say like well you were asked about this and you suggested that you you were making your own decisions and that your lawyers yeah. are all a bunch of income poops you know it's just yeah
1: the, I mean, the, the fact that he is able to get away with so much stuff, I mean, that the really, when you step back up from it, the remarkable thing is that we're even having the, like it, in every yes. one of these situations, it's so blatantly obvious that he has committed the crime that he is on trial for it. And, and <laughs> yes. so the, and, and, you know, he basically just outright says that he's done so. Like we have you know, we could put together, you know, video clips of him basically confessing to each of these things yes. that he's done. Um, and yet we're still like debating about whether this looks bad for him or
0: not. <laughs> so, like it, it's a it's a strange situation we're in it will be so so revealing you know five years from now when this is all said and done we finally have got all of the information out all the trials are done to just have a moment and step back and kind of think about not just the trump presidency but all of the the cases and everything afterwards to be able to, to sort of bookend and just have an assessment of that it's 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 gonna be it'll it'll be something so
1: well in the political implications as we're i mean we're entering yeah election season. I think Chris Christie's going to be on campus uh, this coming week to do so. I mean, we're, it's like we're starting to get within a few months of, of primary season. So as these uh, things f- happen, it'll be fascinating to see, like, again, we haven't even talked about what happens if he is convicted before the, right. the, the election. How does the Republican Party handle that? And yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be an interesting year.
0: It, it is. It is. Absolutely. Well, we should we should, with our last little segment, we should transition to talk a little bit about what's going on in Gaza between Israel and, and Hamas and, and some some pretty dramatic developments. Uh, yesterday, the U.N. Uh, uh, Secretary General Antonio Guterres called and basically demanded a ceasefire in Gaza. Uh, and said that international law was being violated in the war between Israel and Hamas, and 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 this was not just calling out Hamas. I think this was the Secretary General putting a lot of pressure on Israel to say that yes. there needs to be a ceasefire, that we need to think about the lives and protecting the the rights of the Palestinians. Um, uh, Israel demanded that the UN chief resign uh, after he made a comment that Hamas's attack did not occur in a vacuum, uh, sort of suggesting that the history of the ongoing tensions between these two groups helps understand what, what uh, took place. The Israeli diplomat was livid about that and, and called on his resignation. Um, and it also feels like we're on the cusp of a, a massive ground incursion from Israel. And I think so maybe we could kick around the the prospects of that, I I, I know I just I, it just feels like there's no good end to this, and so I I don't know, Phil. What what are you the you know the last couple of days some some pretty big news. What strikes you about all of these stories? Um
1: yeah, I mean I think uh, I I'm happy to see. I mean this is you know what's what we talked about last week, yeah. which is that you know Israel is is uh, justified in responding to what happened, but the the way in which they're responding, um is is. I mean, I was going to say deeply problematic, but yeah, I mean, it 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 is violating all the rules, the ethics, uh, the justice of war, and and international law. And I think it's good that the UN is essentially saying this they've been calling for you know for a, for a while to yeah. to basically stop the this process to allow aid in i mean even when when even the US who is like a, you know when you look around the world the US is as staunch a supporter of Israel as you can find basically even the Biden administration who has been almost you know full-throated support of Israel has been sort of pushing Israel yes. to slow down to allow um you know allow aid to enter, uh, you know, Gaza. So when, when even the U.S. is, is um, you know, sort of startled by the way this is playing out, that should be telling. And that takes me to, um, I, I mean, I, you, we should talk about the Tom Friedman article, but yeah, me yeah. saying that takes me to the, uh, there's you know, to go back to 9-11 analogies, right? This is where um, I, I think about that playing out. Um, you know, in in nine after nine eleven, I think about in Vietnam, like you know, Robert McNamara talked about in both of those situations where the U.S. sort of finds itself kind of plowing ahead on its own um, against and, and the idea of like if 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 you can't sort of convince your your strongest allies that what you're doing is right, then then. You need to like, you know. You need to sort of recognize the situation you're in that that is problematic. And so, when even you're when you're when the Israeli tactics are even troubling the U S, that's I mean that's a lot. That's a right. that's a significant statement in and of itself.
0: No, no, I think that's absolutely right, and I think that's what's so concerning. And and again, you understand the impulse driving the Israelis, right? So they've had this terrible 9-11-like attack on their people, and they want to eliminate Hamas as an entity, right? It's not just about regulating. It's not about diminishing Hamas's power. It's about eliminating that threat so this can't happen again. That is a normal, natural desire. But then you start thinking about how do you go about doing that? Uh, and the way that they've suggested or through their evidence right now is, okay, we're going to, to attack all of their facilities. We're going to you know bomb Gaza. There was one day where there were over 320 targets hit in Gaza. And that sort of stunned me in one day that you're going after all of that. And it doesn't mean that there aren't bad guys in, in, in Gaza, but the inevitability of that is you are going to kill civilians. And the civilian casualty number keeps going up and up and up. And so last week we talked about the proportionality of all of that. And I think that's where we're starting to raise real questions. Is the is the response proportionate to the attack? And how do we keep that in a in a better balance? And it feels like it's starting to slip. I also wonder, and this was this gets us maybe the Tom Friedman piece. You know, Tom Friedman wrote an article in the New York Times saying that Israel is about to make a major mistake. And, and he said it's incumbent upon the United States as a good friend to warn them and suggest that if you're thinking about carrying out a massive land incursion, going house to house and, you know, having a, an all out battle, that is not going to to play out well because there's no good way to win that battle. Right. I mean, sure, you can kill Hamas and you can kill a lot of people, but it doesn't solve the fundamental problem. There's no, there's no good exit strategy. And I think that kind of returns us to you know, in post 9-11, Afghanistan, Iraq, where the United States was was uh, fueled by vengeance and wanting to uh, rid the world of these evildoers, but there was no exit strategy for finishing those conflicts, right? You can go after, but once you break Iraq, once you break Afghanistan, you now are in charge of trying to fix it. And if you don't fix it, that ideology that gave rise to Hamas is still going to be there, it'll present itself in other ways right it doesn't it doesn't last time you were talking kind of sort of like the cycle of violence you don't break the cycle of violence and again i'm struck that israel's response is is in some ways feeding into that so it yeah it's 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 a scary to think about where this all goes
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the, the September 11th analogy is I think increasingly, or it it continues to gain explanatory power to some extent. And then I think about like all these parallels. I mean, one of the things I think about is there were a handful of voices after September 11th that argued that what happened on September 11th was not an act of war. It was, uh, it was, it was a violation of human. It was a, it was a, it was an illegal, it was a terrorist attack. And the response rather than being a military response should essentially have been a legal response, right? We're going yeah. to hold Osama bin Laden legally accountable. We will find Riminally him. We will have him. Yeah. Yep. So we're gonna we're gonna um, and 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 I think they they Turned out to be right, right. I mean, I, I realize that that's harder. It's you know not necessarily easily done, um, but you see the ways in which again the resort to violence ended up being a you know a twenty year and ongoing. Um, it unleashed like a series of events in the you know it actually scattered the terrorist wow. networks. It led to massive recruitment efforts. The destabilization of Iraq um, did not bring about the peace and democracy. It in fact, you know, led to the birth of ISIS and the spread of, of violence to other, you know, other parts of the region and other parts of the world. And it feels like that's, that's where you come back around to the, the concern for Israel should be a, as we talked about last week, a moral or justice concern, right? Like you should be the, the, the fact that I saw one stat that was thrown out the earlier, that was, there were more, Palestinians or more people in Gaza, I don't remember exactly what the context was, um, killed in the last two weeks than in the previous 15 years, right? So this is, I mean, it, it is the amount of violence that has happened. And in Israel, the language they're using is that, you know, they want that they are going to level, um, you know, Hamas, like they're the, 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 the attacks, the bombings that they're doing are meant to sort of pave the way for the land invasion, but it's killing you know, tens of thousands of people, right? I mean, it, it is, it is a brutal indiscriminate attack. And so I think there are more go- moral critiques to be made, but then again, there are strategic critiques to be made, which is like, you go down this path. And, and I think that's where you're exactly right. Like going down this path with an end point, which is we're going to eliminate Hamas, And then, you know, grant Gaza independence or whatever, Like we're moving towards something um, gives a little bit more credibility, but the idea that we're just going to crush this with force and that will end the issue doesn't address any of the underlying causes of, you know, what has the underlying motivations of Hamas. And and so whether you agree with those motivations or not, just the, 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 the attempt to use just a sledgehammer to address this issue is just, it's not going to be successful. It's not going to be successful and it's going to be uh, sort of a morally repugnant um, uh, approach it
0: feels like which is in some ways what Hamas wanted right so some so it's not just the the battle on the ground right so that that's relevant but it's also a battle for public opinion and Hamas and the you know after uh, October 7th they were the bad guy and they still are the bad guy right they are a morally illegitimate actor but part of their intent as we talked last week, Was to precipitate an overly zealous and uh, clumsy response because then they can portray Israel as the bad guy. And that's what we've seen this last week, right? I think, you know, people are, Hamas is releasing hostages. And they're making the argument that they're the moral actor and Israel is the immoral actor. And that's that's not where Israel wants to be, right? They mm-hmm. they want to be on the moral high ground. And it's going to be increasingly difficult to stay there if you're carrying out massive bombing campaigns, if you're going door to door. I mean, this is so people probably remember Fallujah in Iraq and that, you know, the brutality of that house by house battle that the United States was involved in. That's what it's likely going to look like in Gaza if Israel carries out a land incursion, right? Because you know, Hamas is going to hide hostages in tunnels and it's going to be insurgent warfare. And and suddenly you've got to stand back and say, no, we're the we're the clear, moral good guy. And it's going to be incredibly difficult to do. And to your point, like it's there's the moral implications, but it's also it's striking me as a poor strategic choice. Uh, mm-hmm. Like if ultimately if you want the Israelis to live in peace, you've got to find some way of, of enabling the Palestinians to have self-determination, right? They, they've got to have a, a legitimate government and, and be able to express themselves. So how do you how do you eliminate Hamas and then eliminate some of the conditions that gave a rise to uh, Hamas, too?
1: Yeah. I mean, these strategies, you know, Israel has made these arguments that their war is not with Palestinians, it's with Hamas or whatever. But when you use these tactics that don't discriminate between the two, then even like, if you're trying to make, if you're trying to convince Palestinians that like, we don't have a problem with you, we just have a problem with Hamas, um, you know, indiscriminately using, you know, like brutal force widespread is not going to win that argument. And even if people were even if people were willing to believe it at the beginning, the longer that their life is made miserable yes. um, by by Israel, the the like it's going to become I mean, whether Israel wants it or not, it is a war against Palestinians at that yes. at that point. Right. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it, it is both it, it is, you know, the, again, the the desire for justice or retribution or whatever is understandable. Um, but it, it does feel like uh Israel is e- either not seeing clearly or I mean, if they are seeing clearly, it, it lends a lot of credence to the argument that we talked sure. about last week of of, you know, if they are intentionally committing, you know, widespread essentially attacks on civilians, um, yeah, I mean their their arguments about about what their purpose are is in this conflict become harder and harder to to sort of believe, I guess
0: and it's it's probably a good point to bring some domestic politics in this right so some of what's driving this is is the far right in the israeli government that is pushing for these more hawkish views and again if we if we return some of our listeners are old enough to remember those moments post 9/11 there's a receptive audience to that right there are people who want vengeance a lot of people want vengeance because they've seen the brutality of that attack by Hamas but but that's the point when you have to get your domestic politics under control and and it's difficult right i mean in the united states we did not do that right i mean george w bush was was convinced to, to wage a war in Iraq that had nothing to do with 9-11. It created a complete instability in the Middle East, gave rise to ISIS. I mean, all of these bad things came from that. Um, it just feels like it sure would be nice if Israel would sort of see the the mistakes that the United yeah. States and other actors historically have made when trying to confront an asymmetrical threat and be more strategic about that. Come up with, I mean, I don't know, the thing is I don't know what that looks like, but it's easy right. to see the the wrong pathway right and that, that's that's where we're at right now
1: well i think that's the way i think like even if you take the the sort of zoom out approach and if you're just like I'm not, you know, there's all sorts of moral issues involved in this, but, you know, even if Israel is just trying to achieve a goal, which is to maximize their security, right, to feel safer, um, this, it feels like is, is, you know, achieving the opposite of that, right, because of all the stuff we've talked about. And it's also where, again, the sort of heavy handedness of it is what is leading to what feels like a continuing unra- continual unraveling of the region because, you know, Israel, uh, so Iran, you know, Hezbollah has started, started to to join into this. Um, and I think this is where at some point Israel is going to interpret that probably rightfully so as, as an Iranian yes. provocation as well. And so it just feels like only a matter of time until this is less about I think what begins with we're seeking, you know, some sort of justice is going to end in in a, a wider regional war that will actually mean less security for Israel yeah, than right. than than they currently had when this whole thing started.
0: Yeah, I think that's just spot on, and I think those are the fears that are keeping the Biden administration up at night. I think it's fair to say this last week to ten days maybe the most stressful the Biden administration has felt about issues of foreign policy, because you've got Ukraine, you've got Israel, you've got China. I mean, all of these things are coming to a head. And Biden is looking at what's happening in the Middle East and feeling things slipping. You know, like the the, the connections between Arab states and Israel are, are very tenuous now. And, and Iran is getting involved, Hezbollah, right? And this could, it's not just bad for Israel. This could also be really bad for the United States. So there's been increasing number of proxy attacks by Iranian proxy forces against U.S. embassies, against U.S. military uh, facilities in in, uh, Iraq and Syria. Those are going to increase and, and put some pressure on the United States where maybe they have to respond, right? So it's not inconceivable for the United States to get pulled into this conflict. I mean, I think Biden has done a wonderful job in Ukraine of making it a proxy war, where the United States is not engaging in that conflict. Uh, And I think he's trying to do the same thing in Israel. We will see whether he can continue to do that because a lot of forces are gonna be trying to pull the U.S. in.
1: And there are less guardrails there in in a lot of ways, in that like the the U.S. was, like the the danger of, of an open confrontation with Russia is sort of apparent from the beginning when they're both nuclear powers or whatever. But the idea of, you know, the U.S. carrying out airstrikes in Iran is is seemingly less off the table than what it's sort of unimaginable to the for the U.S. to carry out airstrikes in Russia. But it it feels like for a lot of different reasons that that is less unimaginable here. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's that it is it's it's uh, it's it's concerning. Um, And, you know, again, as those dominoes, fall. Uh, I don't, you know, again, it, it just feels like this is the, you know, the, the, the sort of bad actors in the region and in the, in the, the world, this path we're on is the path that seeming would seem to delight them, right? in yes, order to yes. like to to sort of um point to Israel and the United States as the sort of bad actors who are using force against, you know the 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 people of the middle east. and and, you know, those that's that's how it's playing out at this point.
0: It, it, it absolutely is. It, to me, it feels like this slow motion crash that we're watching and you know where it's going to end up. And again, maybe because the United States has been through this, right? So maybe that's why this feels so clear. Uh, but it, we, we see the pattern. We know what's going to happen here. And you, you just want something different to happen. And, and hopefully it does. Hopefully cooler minds prevail you know maybe israel reassesses and, and thinks more about both a political and a military solution but but right now it feels like everybody is happy to be fighting each other and that's never good it's impossible to break the cycle of violence in that that space
1: you like it's hard to like what would what would be playing out now if Trump were president instead of like it's again when you think about the moments of international crisis. But
0: he'd what, solve so it was, in a day, Phil. One day, one day. <laughs> well, we
1: never would have gotten here because they right. would have everybody would have been so afraid of him that uh, yeah. Uh, so you know, Biden gave the speech last week. Uh, I guess I think it was Thursday night, right? So it was after yeah, we recorded, yeah, after in which recorded, he did the, yeah. the 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 address in which he called for you know support and funding for for Ukraine and for Israel, and he drew a parallel between like democracy standing up against what you know uh whatever violence or against uh you know any, anyway that that it's important for us to come together and support democracies around the world um and he's taken. There's been some some criticism, uh, some backlash, uh, for conflating or for comparing Ukraine to Israel, right? And that uh, Ukraine, they were both attacks, but but played out, and they're again sort of different scenarios. Um, and and I don't know. What do you think about that? Is it is is it? I, I'm a little, I don't love the idea that he yeah. sort of tied the two together. I think you could make a case, but I, I worry that tying the two together might actually weaken his argument for support of Ukraine in in some ways. Yeah. And so it's, it's a, it also feels like a generational difference in that I feel like yes. older Americans are much more supportive of Israel and, and younger Americans are much more sort of willing to be critical. But yeah, I was I was I don't know. I, I've seen people who said that speech was, you know, a defining moment in a positive way of Biden's uh, administration, but I, I was a little troubled by it in some ways.
0: It's, it's it's an awkward connection, right? Because his argument is they're both democracies and they're both fighting anti-democratic forces. Okay, yeah. I get that. But yeah. one is a more conventional battle where the power is bigger, so Russia is bigger than Ukraine, and the other is an example where Hamas is an, as- it's an asymmetrical war. So they are yeah. much weaker than Israel. So those are weird comparisons. I think the reason he does it and, is... And it Israel best- is
1: occupying right. pal- the Palestinian <laughs> territories, much like Russia is occupying parts of, of Ukraine. So He didn't yeah, bring it, that
0: up Phil though that didn't right. make it in the speech <laughs> okay but no but I think the the other really sort of interesting thing here is that he's doing this for domestic politics right so support for the war in Ukraine is dropping quickly mm-hmm. and that's because Americans get bored with their wars right I mean there's there's no reason why the, the things haven't changed the impetus supports the Ukraine is as strong as it was a couple of years ago uh, but Americans are like eh, I'm not so interested in that anymore so he's trying to tie the two and use the support for Israel to fuel Ukraine, yeah. um, which I get it from a domestic politics standpoint, but from a broad sort of geostrategic level, right. The we were, he was stretching the comparison a little bit too. No, I, I found that a tad awkward. Well, it's
1: it's kind of a classic two level game situation yes. in which it it might be the the move that helps win support continued support for uh, Ukraine at, at home, but it, that speech is being played around the world as well, right? And so the you know it's it is it might help at home and yet erode America's leadership potential abroad in a way that. That uh, in the long term is, is, you know, more damaging than, than yes. you know, whatever, a, a lack of support for, for one of the sides right now.
0: And I, I think Biden's love for the state of Israel is authentic. And I think we saw that in the speech and some of the other things he's done. I do wonder whether he's a little uncomfortable with how that love and tying himself to Israel and their their policy now is going to be much more uncomfortable because they're, they may do things and are probably doing things that the United States doesn't agree with. But yet you don't want to come out and openly criticize. So I think there's there's two sides to what, what Biden is saying. There's the public side of, of absolute support. We are 100% with Israel. But then there's the behind the scenes where, where I think a lot of these concerns are being expressed, but not done so in a way to embarrass uh, the Israelis publicly. But that may become more difficult as time goes by. Today and yesterday, the U.S. administration was saying that uh, no ceasefire, but there should be you know pauses for humanitarian uh, concerns. And I think that's the first public case where we're seeing the U.S. put a little distance between itself and Israel.
1: Well, it's a weird situation as well. And domestically, as we enter election season, in which in the yes. past, this sort of thing might have been a boost to a president. But I think Joe Biden, who's not who's already not particularly popular with young Democrats, right, yeah. um, is running into a, a potential like it's it's a difficult line for him to walk electorally. Um, you know, out, again, this is talking about it that we're, we're sort of minimizing or abstracting the the actual suffering that's going on. But um, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. it, I don't know how he navigates that in which he, I don't know, tries to claim American leadership, but in this case might actually turn away some, some, you know, young voters who, who would otherwise be supportive right. of him. I, I think there's uh, a lack of, of recognition of just how divided the American population is on, on a lot of this stuff.
0: That's a great point and probably a good place to wrap up. Um, so do you want to remind everybody how they can stay connected with us? We've got, the, I think you said the one piece by Thomas Friedman, which is a yeah—a good sort of look at U.S.-Israeli relations. How do they how do they stay connected with us?
1: Yeah, that's all at thepoliticslab.com um, where you can go and click on this week's episode. You can find that link to to Tom Friedman. You can also just go to the New York Times and find the article by Tom Friedman <laughs> if you want, right. uh, if there's only like one article. But yeah, you can also find all our social media uh, information and emails and all of that stuff on on
0: the web page that sounds fantastic all right phil i will see you next week all right bye bill bye phil